Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Nicole Eunice. I'm part of the team here at Ward. I'm really glad to get to bring a message to you this morning. I'm part of the team, but I come from Richmond, Virginia. So I fly in to get to be with you guys occasionally. And I'm really glad to be here. And Pastor Scott decided to give me the book of the Bible that many people don't even know is in the Bible. So it's Nahum. I'm sure you've memorized large portions of it. I know you know exactly where it is. I made this joke in the last service. That's what we've had. We make the same jokes over and over again. And in the last service, one of the guys in the choir was like, I actually have memorized large sections of Nahum. And I was like, you should have preached this message. That's amazing. So um, I'm really glad though to get to bring this because I want to walk with you through the process I've been in this week as I've prepared to teach and, and because I know that God's word is active in our lives and that God's word is powerful. And when God brings us a word and he puts something in scripture, he put it there for a purpose. And the purpose is still the same for us in 2021 as it was when it was written. So we got to do a little digging to get to it today, but I'm really, really excited for what God has for us through the book of Nahum. Nahum is about a God who reckons with his enemies. And what we have to reckon with this morning is a big question, which is what do we do with God's anger? Because the book of Nahum is an angry book. It's a book that's actually been called war poetry. It's like an ongoing taunt where God prophesies through Nahum about what is going to happen to a city called Nineveh. But in this thing, we've got these three chapters of Nahum, but actually this is a story within a story. This is just one piece of the story. And for us to do the work of understanding what God has for us, we've got to understand a little bit more about what's going on in this story. And so we've got to know a little bit more about the city of Nineveh. Um, Nineveh appears three different times in the Old Testament. Does anyone know where it appears besides those of you who are well-versed in Nahum? Anyone else? Jonah, right? Jonah, you guys remember Jonah and the whale, that story? Jonah has to go to Nineveh. That's the place that he goes. That's actually the second time that it appears in scripture. The first time Nineveh appears in scripture is actually in Genesis. So we're gonna look at Genesis chapter 10. This is where the story starts for Nineveh. And this is Genesis 10 verses eight through 11. And what's happening here in Genesis this is the beginning of the Bible is that um, the, the tribes are beginning to propagate through the world and they're spreading after the flood. And we get into a little Little bit of a genealogy that's happening here. And so in this story, we hear about Cush, who fathered Nimrod. This is verse eight. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So here at the very beginning of the story, we already hear about Nineveh. And this chapter in the Bible is actually that Bible story that you may remember about the Tower of Babel. Do you guys know that story where people came together and they were like, we're going to build this big thing because we're awesome. And when you know about the Tower of Babel, what you know about that story is that this is the beginning of us understanding the human obsession with power and self-sufficiency. And the story of Nimrod, although it sort of sounds like positive in our language right here, this is actually um, would be considered by commentators to be the beginning of this like conquest warrior violence, which is not what God designed us for in the beginning. But we see this enter in right here. And what does he build? He builds Nineveh. 
That's the first time that we hear about this place. The Tower of Babel is about self-sufficiency and independence apart from God. And we begin to see God interacting with the freedom of humanity to do wrong, to do evil, to not be good. Nineveh emerges again as a superpower as, um, it, within the Assyrian kind of empire, and it reaches its height when they move the capital of the Assyrian empire to Nineveh. And so now Nineveh is going to be this place that represents all this power and conquest in the world. And it's in this place that we actually hear about uh, Jonah comes here. And also this is where Nahum gets a word from the Lord that Nineveh and the whole book of Nahum is about God completely destroying all of Nineveh. Here's Nahum 1, verses 2 and 3 in the NIV. We just heard it in the message from Terrence. Here it is in the NIV. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. And the story of Nahum goes on and on just like that. It's graphic, it's violent, it's strong imagery about what God is going to do to his enemies. Many of the prophets have a redemptive theme that kind of lifts the story at the end. Nope, not this one. This one is just about the anger of God. And what I wanna to propose to you as, as what we build out today is this one point that the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. And I think what we're gonna discover is that our God is not indifferent. He's not indifferent toward his people. He's not indifferent toward violence. He's not indifferent toward injustice. Our God is not indifferent. Anger is not the opposite of love. If my children, when they were little, would run out into the street, would it be loving to just let them figure it out? No, that would be indifferent. Love is actually running after them and pulling them back. Love might even be punishing them for running out into the street. Love might be angry in that moment because I am not indifferent toward my children. I'm passionate about my children. And God is not indifferent toward us. And he is not indifferent about the world. In order to understand what Nineveh was really all about, we actually have to do a little bit of history. Nahum, in the story, it prophesies that Nineveh is going to completely fall, be reduced to stubble, and be hidden from the world. Now, it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around what this would have been like at the time, but this is almost like if right now in this day, a little nation in Africa or a little island nation was prophesying that Wall Street was going to burn and the U.S. was going to completely topple. It would be in this moment, that, that's how strange it would be to the ears of those who heard it from Nahum because Nineveh was the largest city in the world at that time. It was a city built also on violence and conquest. This Assyrian empire took no prisoners and showed no mercy. And that's how this city was actually built. Here's a picture. Um, the city then was hidden completely until the 1800s 
where its original site was found. This is, this is the real deal, guys. Like the Bible is real and now we get to back it up with history. So here we go. So this guy excavated the city of Nineveh and you see the scale of this massive statue that was at the front gates of the city of Nineveh. It was a fortified city surrounded by a wall. It says in actually the book of Jonah and it's backed up by, by this excavation. It would have taken three days to get across the city. It's estimated that at the time of Nahum's writing, the city would have had 150,000 people and it was huge. The biggest city of its day and beautiful, just a beautiful place. But the walls also tell another story. And when they excavated Nineveh, you can actually see the stories that were sort of inscribed into the walls in the British Museum today. So here's a, here's a picture of one of those inscriptions that was excavated from Nineveh. This is actually a picture of slaves being brought, being carried into the city. The entire city was built on the backs of slaves. What Assyrians did when they, when they took tribes and they took villages is they took tribute, they took plunder, they took slaves. They were violent, they perfected torture. That's what it's actually said about the Assyrian Empire. It was the most brutal and barbaric empire of the day. And they were built on that violence. Look at this next inscription. This is actually um, what, also in the walls, what you see going on here is this is actually victims, criminals, or whoever was probably other leaders of other tribes impaled on sticks on the city walls. This is how everyone was kept in line. This is an empire that beheaded people, that burned young children, and that impaled anyone who stood against them. It was a violent and wicked place. Now, if you know the story of Jonah, maybe you also know why Jonah didn't want to go there. We have to ask the question, what do we do with the anger of God? But I think people at that day might've asked God, why haven't you acted sooner? Because what, what God does through Jonah is he says, I need you to go to Nineveh and preach about my mercy. This is about 100 years before Nahum. And if you know the story of Jonah, you know that Jonah did not want to go. He tried to run away. He went as far away from Nineveh as he could. God swept him up in the belly of a whale, spit him onto the shore and told him to get going. And he went to Nineveh, this place, place with the, he probably thought he was gonna get impaled like that. And he preached a message of God. And the themes of Jonah we know are that Jonah um, tells us about God's sovereignty. It tells us about God's mercy for all the nations. Jonah tells us about our need for repentance from sin. And finally, what happens in the book of Jonah is that God relents when people repent. And Jonah did not like that part of God. Jonah was actually throwing a temper tantrum outside the city about that. And at the end of the story, we don't actually know more than this. We know that God spoke to Jonah and said, should I not have pity on the people of Nineveh and their animals beside? You see, the story of Nineveh and the story of Nahum is a story of a God who is patient with us. A God who gives opportunity again and again to relent from or to repent from our pride a God who promises to relent when people repent. And at that time in Nineveh, people actually did repent and God stayed his hand. He did not destroy Nineveh. A hundred years later, Nineveh had returned to their wicked ways. And that's the story of Nahum. It's a story of a God who is patient, but who is also powerful. A God who does care about justice. But for us, we have to ask the question, what do we do with the aspect of God that we see played out here in the story of Nahum? Because is this a story that was just meant 
for this ancient, violent culture? Or is this a story meant for you and me in the culture we live in today? And I think because God's word has decreed that it is here, it is for us today. And we have to do some of the work of working through our objections to understand this aspect of who God is, this angry God. When you read through Nahum in your small groups, you're going to see it is very, very strong imagery about how against the, the Ninevites God really is. And every single thing that we see played out in history, the way that Nineveh fell is all prophesied in Nahum. It happened about 20 to 40 years after it was prophesied. The, the enemies of the Assyrians came together, they laid siege against the city, and then the rivers flooded, which eroded the city walls so that the walls fell. The city burned, was flooded, and was actually reduced to stubble, as it says in Nahum. It was actually hidden, as it says in Nahum, not to be discovered until the 1800s. Everything happened just as it was prophesied. But what does that tell us about God? What do we need to know about God in the midst of that. And I think that there's a couple of objections that we might have, the things that could be disturbing about this book on a couple of levels for us. And these are, these are things that I've been asking the questions about this week. A friend and Bible scholar of mine named Carolyn Custis James says, anytime you ask the question why, you become a theologian. All of us have to ask, what is this about God? And what are the objections that we might have to a God who is vengeful? a God who actually stands up against his enemies. And I think the first question we have to ask is that, is this doesn't add up to what I know about Jesus. Anybody ever heard that talking about faith when you hear people say, well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the God of the New Testament. This doesn't add up to what I know about Jesus in church. What I actually have to say about that is I think all of us have probably not done a great job of explaining who Jesus is if those don't add up. Because the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Take a look at what Jesus had to say about judgment. Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, Jesus is actually denouncing the towns where most of his miracles had been performed because what? They did not repent. You see, what God is always in for is repenting of pride. All the way back to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 10, what was the problem? It was human obsession with self-sufficiency and independence. And God sends his prophets to call people to repent of their pride. And when Jesus denounces the towns of his day, he's like, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Tyre, woe to you, Sidon. It would be better for you to be like Sodom than it will be for you at the day of judgment. That's our Jesus who says those words. He says, the miracles that were performed in you have been performed, it would have remained, but I'm telling you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. That's Jesus. Just a little bit later in Matthew chapter 13, listen to the parable that Jesus tells. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but they threw the bad fish away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus used the phrase at the end of the age to refer to the time in the future where the kingdom of God will be fully established, where true justice will reign and where the wicked will be judged. So yes, it does add up to what Jesus said. Yes, we can look around at the problems in our community and in our world. And we can say, yes, there will be a time 
when all wrongs will be made right. We can open our eyes to poverty, to violence, to oppression, to corruption, and we can say with certainty that God does actually care about these issues. Second objection that I think can come up is if God is this harsh and this violent, surely there were some that were innocent. I don't wanna be a part of a God like that. And what I would say to us church is that I think that our world has been so small that it's easy to have a personal God who's here to deal with my personal problems. But actually what God allows us to do is to open our eyes to the actual evil and the actual violence in our world. Not to remove ourselves from it, but to realize this is, this is who we are. This is, this is what we've done. We are mankind. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to take my kids with me on a ministry trip, trip to South Africa. And it, seeing it through their eyes as kids, when we went from the airport over to where we were staying, we passed these townships and townships in the time of apartheid were where people were judged by their race, forcibly removed from their land and their homes, stuck into these small areas where they had to live. And that still remains, the remnant of that still remains to this day. And so we passed this township with literal shacks, like shanties, millions of people living as far as your eye could see. All you can see are shacks in the shadow of a beautiful winery. And you know what that is? It's like America times 100. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not that it doesn't exist here, but I think so often our eyes have been so closed to the reality of injustice and violence and corruption that we think, oh, I, ooh, I don't want a violent God. And I'm like, but that's a personal God. What if you need a powerful God? One who is not controllable or malleable by you, but a far greater than you. Can you trust God's power and his goodness and the unchangeable fact that we breathe this air and we put our feet on this ground? It is all here because he spoke it into existence. Do we want a God who makes the wrongs right, but in his own time and in his own way? If we isolate ourselves from hurt, we can fool ourselves into thinking we don't need a powerful God. But if you open your eyes to hurt, to evil, to wickedness, to darkness, then we want a powerful God. We need a God who is the hero of the story. We need a God who comes through in the end. We want a God who is powerful because the opposite of love is not anger, it is indifference. And we don't have a God who is indifferent to the work, the violence, the evil of this world. We do not have a God who's indifferent to you and to me, to his people. We have a God who sees and a God who acts. So what can we learn from Jonah, from Nahum about God today? And you know what, we already sung our way into it. Jimmy had not seen my notes because I didn't give them to anyone. So God designed a worship service where we could sing our way into what we know about God from this passage. The first is that God is good. God is good. Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. When you know the story of Nineveh and you know that God actually sent his prophets again and again to offer repentance, that it was actually very slow. For God's chosen people, they would be like, why would you allow this violence to remain? Why would you allow this darkness to remain? And for some of us who've experienced the trauma of the world, we might ask that same question of God. We might be like, God, God why won't you act? But God is patient, but don't let that confuse you about his power. God is good. 
And God is also just. This is the end of the book of Nahum, chapter 3, verse 19. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? God does eventually judge. And he does make a judgment on what Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire has been. And it is the end of the story. But God is on his own timeline. God is good, God is just, and God is on his own timeline. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God moving in our lives is not just about the darkness out there. It's also about the darkness in here. Why does God want us to know this aspect of him? Because we have to reckon with the fact that the darkness in here is a part of the darkness out there. If you want to learn more about this kind of stuff, I recommend a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet by Josh Butler. And here's a quote from that book. Everybody wants murder and rape out of the world. I've never met a fan of genocide and sex trafficking. Every beauty pageant queen dreams of world peace, but we are not beauty queens. Even beauty queens are not beauty queens. They and we are the very ones who've set God's world aflame. We've unleashed the destructive power of hell in the beautiful place God once called very good. Our own sin has left a trail of tears through our tragic and traumatized history. We have brought all the horror of hell to planet Earth, and Jesus is going to kick it out. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And God is not indifferent toward those he loves. He stands against the evil in our world and the evil in our hearts. He called Moses to lead his chosen people. He sent prophets to give opportunity again and again for people to turn to him. And he sent his only son into the world at just the right time so that those who would turn to him, who would repent, who would accept our need for an answer to our own selfishness, to our own self-sufficiency, to our own pride. And when it feels like the bad guys are winning, remember, God has not forgotten you. He is not indifferent. He is passionate, and he is patient, and he is powerful. So what can we learn from today, from Nahum, from the minor prophets that informed Jesus from the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, who is the same God, what we can learn today is a couple of things. First, there's only one shelter from the judgment of sin, and it's the shelter of the cross. There is only one place where we can find shelter from judgment. And this is a passage about all of us from Ephesians 2. All of us. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
You see, the God of justice is not about the bad guys out there, but also the bad guy in here. And praise God that through his love and mercy, he has sent us Christ Jesus who gives us shelter from our sin. Because we were all just like the guys who impaled guys. We all in our nature were victims, we're children of wrath. And it's because of Jesus that we have been set free. The second thing that we can learn from today is that only God can ultimately judge and he will. God will judge. The great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is we do not have to be the heroes, but there is a hero. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is the truth of our world for all the darkness, for all the violence, for all the evil, for the injustice, for the corruption, for the pain. There is a God who is patient, but he is powerful and he will judge. So as I was praying about this message this week, a difficult one in some ways to try to wrestle through together on a Sunday morning, I was like, God, what do you, what is, what do you want us to do with this? What, what is the move? What do we do with this message? And I, I think that the Lord gave me a word just from the spirit just to say, hey, Nicole, tell them and tell your heart. It is mine to judge. It is yours to forgive. You know what God gave us to do? He gave us forgiveness. He kept the power of judgment in his own hands, but he gave us the power of forgiveness in our hands. You know, you're all, we're all a story built on a story built on a story. Every single one of us is built on generations who've come before us, who've testified to the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why you're sitting here today. And the beginning of that story was when the resurrected Christ came to his disciples and he was gonna send them out to do the work that they were called to do. And it says in scripture that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And you know what he gave them the power to do? Not to judge, but to forgive. And I think God's looking at us, his church today and saying, leave judgment in my hands. I've put forgiveness in your hands. That's what good looks like for you. You trust me as the ultimate judge. You trust me as the one who will make wrongs right. And you do good right here with the power I've given you. And the power I've given you is the power of the gospel. This whole message, this whole series has been built on Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. It does not say to do judgment. It says to do justice. That means right here in your seat, in the things that you can control, in the places that you have, you live a life of integrity and justice. Oh man, what is good? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. The message of Micah and the message of Nahum and the message of Jesus Christ is the same. It is by grace that we've been saved. And God will be the hero of this story and we can trust him with that. God's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to turn to him again and again and accept his guidance, his wisdom for your life. God's calling us to trust him for his provision, to trust him for his timing, to trust him with his power and receive his peace this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we breathe in and out these things that are, are sometimes hard for us to hold together. 
that you are good, that you are patient, that you desire no one to perish but for everyone to come to repentance, but that, God, you are also powerful and you are just and you will right every wrong. And, God, you are on your own timeline and we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture and we trust you, good shepherd, with the things that we understand and the things that we don't with the things that we can't change, God. And we ask you, God, to give us the strength for the things that we can change, that we might show up as people of grace, as people of forgiveness, as people who have a deep and abiding trust in your ultimate last word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.